Hello, welcome to episode 42 of Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. Today and for the next few weeks, brought to you by Service Credit Union. Pretty excited to have them on board. I'm Nick. I'm here with Will. Howdy. <laughs> he doesn't have a microphone on his head right now. Nancy. Good morning. John Bernstein. Good morning. And Sam Lickman. Morning, everyone. And uh, today we are going to be getting into some historical firearms with our guests. Um who have recently written articles for, or re- written content for Leatherneck Magazine relating to the M1 Garand, or Garand, as Sam will pronounce it. Sure. Um, John, what are you up to these days? Uh, well, I'm the Arms and Armor Curator for NMMC, and uh, have been here for about two years now. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've been uh, actually pretty busy um, on a number of levels, uh, actually, right now I'm, I'm been, I've been doing a lot of research into uh, aircraft rockets because uh, uh, aviation ordnance also falls under my purview. Um, but yeah, we've been uh, reorganizing the the arms room and and uh, sort of going through and, and identifying uh, those pieces with historical provenance that we can really tell a good story with, and uh, been trying to get the word out about those things through our, our Weapons Wednesday videos and also through Leatherneck and uh, of course into the museum as well. All right, and the museum's back up to full bore. Yeah, yeah, we are right. open. Uh, you know, right. regular schedule now. Awesome. And uh, Sam, what are you up to? Um, I'm a full-time college student, and I work part-time at a gun store. Nothing really interesting other than that about me. Um, interesting. Uh, no, not even. Full disclosure: <laughs> Sam is Nancy's son, <laughs> and uh, he's up to. Nancy, what else is he up to? Well, Sam time? grew up at Leatherneck. He, yeah. He yeah, I've I've been uh, tagging along in here since I was about eight years old, and so I I guess it's only fair that I should give something back and write articles. And my I believe my fourth is uh, just about to go to press. Awesome, awesome. All right, and you both have recently contributed to Leatherneck. And for those of our listeners who aren't members or don't properly read Leatherneck, Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about? Yes, our Leatherneck. Magazine of the Marines is a monthly publication of the Marine Corps Association. We cover the history, culture, traditions, and esprit de corps of the Marine Corps. And if you're not reading Leatherneck, I want to tell you right now, you should be. All right. And you can get Leatherneck by becoming a member of the Marine Corps Association or subscribing to it through our app, which you can find on the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. Um, We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. We'll be right back to start our discussion on the other side. This episode of Scuttlebutt is sponsored by Service Credit Union. Our friends at Service Credit Union have been serving military, veterans, and their families for over 65 years. You might know that they provide mortgages, including VA loans as well as auto and personal loans. But did you know that they now have a loan specifically for the iBot mobility device? For those who don't know... The iBot is a revolutionary device that goes above and beyond what a traditional mobility device can do. It can go up curbs, navigate stairs in snow, and even rise up to six feet. Of course, this device also comes with a high cost that isn't usually covered by insurance. So Service Credit Union has stepped in to help provide its members with financing, with no money down and terms up to 72 months. For more details, visit servicecu.org backslash ibot. All right, and uh, happy 4th of July to everybody. And I don't can't think of any better way to celebrate America than talking about some guns. Um, I got to agree with you there. 
All right. We're specifically, we're going to start with the uh, articles that each of you have contributed to Leatherneck recently. Um, I guess we'll start with you, Sam, because yours came out in April. Um, this is my rifle and M1. What Did you learn anything while you were writing that? Um, yeah, just for a little bit of background. Um, w I have a series running in Leatherneck. I, something of a series. There are only two installments so far called This is My Rifle, and it's about the small arms used by the Marine Corps throughout history. And this past one was about the M1 Garand. Yes, I know people pronounce it Garand. We'll get into that later. Um, about the history, the development, uh, I go into sort of the engineering and uh, how the rifle performed in service. I love your article, by the way. Um, so if you want to just uh, dive into it uh, a little bit, um, what in, uh, uh, in the part of the process of, of choosing... Uh, the Elmo Grand rifle. What were its predecessors beforehand? Uh, when people, when we started going from bolt action to semi-auto, really informed the design of the uh, the M1 rifle. So it replaced the M1903 Springfield in 1936 officially. Uh, the Army was the first service to adopt it. The Marine Corps held out for a little while longer. Uh, I know a lot of Marines out there will joke that um, everything they get is just cast off from the Army, uh, which is sometimes true. And uh, because the, the Marine Corps doesn't really have its own acquisitions program in the same way the Army does and the Navy. Um, the Marine Corps held out for a little bit longer before adopting the M1. They were also looking at a rifle developed by Melvin Johnson, who was a Marine Corps reserve officer. And Marines actually carried those going into the Second World War. So Guadalcanal, uh, the Marines did not have M1s when they invaded that island. But they adopted them pretty quickly thereafter. Uh, Marines in the fleet seemed to like them, and the Marine Corps used those until they were replaced by the M14 and then M16. Cool. So, uh, why were they uh, like hesitant or slow to pick up the M1 Garand and, and, and ditch the uh, M1903? There's this theme you'll see throughout the history of U.S. military acquisitions. I'm sure you get this in other countries, but I'm not as familiar with those. Of the people in acquisitions being very conservative about new technology. They tend to be pretty hesitant to jump on board with this great new thing that promises to make soldiers and Marines so much more effective in combat because they worry about things like the, um, the changes to the logistics system to support a new weapon system or whatever. They worry about uh, whether or not this this unproven technology will actually work properly in field conditions, things like that. And in U.S. service, planners seem to be oddly concerned about soldiers and Marines wasting ammunition. This was an issue during the, the American Civil War. The U.S. Army uh, refused to adopt any repeating rifle. They actually stonewalled as hard as they could to keep soldiers and Marines from getting uh repeating rifles because they thought that would make them waste ammunition. And same with moving from bolt-action Springfields to the semi-automatic Garand rifle. They were terrified that um, the ability to, to fire more rapidly would just mean people would be wasting ammunition, which didn't, didn't really end up being, uh, being the case. Obviously, having more firepower is a good thing in how it multiplies the effectiveness of a unit of the same size. Yeah, weren't the Marines too? I don't know if this is quite uh, officially how they're doing it, but the way they they were kind of spinning it publicly would be that they were talking about how the Marines are all basically sharpshooters anyway. They're all 
super accurate? One of the concerns was that they were going to lose that that focus on precision rifle marksmanship um, with a semi-automatic rifle, which, you know, as Sam said, just was not the case at all. In fact, it made them much more precise uh, because they could get a second round off right on target, um, you know, that much faster. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a, a myth, but it was the main reason for that, that delay in adoption. And then, um, so the Marines have picked up the rifle and the island chain. So that, I just, I'm just going to transition over to uh, you, John. Sure. Uh, the Macon Atoll uh, rifle that you're writing an article about. It's So uh, the Macon Raid was the first Marine Corps combat use of the M1. Um, there was some combat use of it by the Army in the Philippines. There were a few of them that did, uh, did see combat there and, and were used fairly effectively. Um, but Macon, uh, which was 10 days after the invasion of Guadalcanal, um, was the first Marine Corps use of it. And uh, the way that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Evans Carlson organized his unit um, was sort of unconventional. And, uh, and their squads were made up of fire teams of an M1 man, a Thompson man, and a BAR man. Uh, Three-man fire team. Uh, each squad had three, or excuse me, each squad had four three-man fire teams and a, and a uh, squad leader. Uh, so really, um, you know, a lot of firepower. And uh, one of the things in the after-action reports that, that it talks about was the Japanese actually singled out the M1 men over the BAR gunners or the Thompson gunners because they were that much more dangerous. Uh, precision rifle, aimed rifle fire, semi-automatically, you know, really was, was a concern to the Japanese. Uh, so that really was, you know, was a major uh, issue uh, that they ran into on Macon. Was it because the Raiders were more, I guess, new for the Marine Corps at that time that they got the, the preeminent weapons compared to your average infantryman on Guadalcanal? Sure, yeah. I mean, they were, they were the, the special forces of the day, um, you know, the, 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 you know, Marsoc of the, of the day. Um, and so, yeah, they did get sort of higher priority. Uh, and, and because the Raider battalions were, were pretty much hand-built, they were able to, to identify weapon systems that, that they wanted that were sort of outside of the, the standard chain. And you're, uh, you said the Japanese uh, reported on the on this effectiveness. Was that known to the Marines afterward? Was it captured information, or was it revealed after the no, war? No, no. This was the Marine Corps after action report citing, you know, just going over what they they encountered. And the Japanese snipers would focus on the the M1 riflemen rather than uh, the BAR gunners or the uh, the Thompson guys. But the actual rifle that your article is about, yep. it was recovered. Many, many years after the battle, right? So there were 19 Marines. Uh, actually, there were 30 Marines that, that didn't make it back. Um, but 19 of them were buried on the island. Um, of those, uh, you know, sorry, um, those 19 were were left on the island because you know, there, were, there were a lot of struggles getting off the island, you know, the rest of the battalions and everything, and they just were not able to, to bring their, their uh, dead with them. Um, so the natives uh, on the island um, dug a mass grave and, and buried the Marines with their equipment and everything. Um, the Army actually uh, retook the island uh, about 16 months later. Uh, so there was some question, all, you know, could this be a leftover um, Army rifle? Nope, not at all. This was found with the, the remains of those 19 Marines, uh, and there were definite indications, including dog tags and things like that, that these were the, the Macon uh, remains. Um, so... The, uh, the rifle itself, um, it's sort of, uh, it, it's, 
it's a contradiction in a lot of ways because in, in some ways it's in just terrible condition and some ways it's an amazing condition. Um, so, you know, it, it uh, was recovered in 1999 when they, re- they recovered the remains. Uh, it went to the Raider Association first and then the Raider, Raider Association gave it to the museum. And uh, so it, it spent uh, five and a half years in, uh, in conservation with the, uh, the Naval um, uh, with NH- NHHC's uh, underwater archaeology lab, and they removed all of the the sort of encrustations and stuff on it, um, massive chunks of of coral sand and stuff like that. And actually, as they were going through it, they realized there were still two live rounds in it, um, which was incredible. Yeah, still pretty cool. I mean, one round in the chamber and then one left in the magazine. So I mean, this marine went down fighting. Uh, and that, I mean, I get chills every time I say that because, I mean, it's just, wow. So um, they uh, they did this incredible uh, conservation on, on the piece. Um, the uh, there, there are some things that, that are just gone now, like the, the upright handle is just, it doesn't exist anymore. The trigger guard, we have like four fragments of it. Um, but overall, the rifle's basically intact. Um, so... You know the bolt is is out of it or is is able to move. Um, the cleaning kit was still in the stock, and it was in pristine condition. Like like literally, you could use it. No corrosion, no nothing. Um, you know the the uh, the brushes, the pull the pull through thong, and everything are all still there. Um, so we're uh, we're really going to be doing. Um, I, we've already got a plan to have it on exhibit fairly quickly, so we're, we're going to be able to display all of that, too, in the museum, which is really going to be uh, pretty amazing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the rifle is uh, probably as close to a holy relic as you could you could uh, find for the Marine Corps. So it's just uh, it's amazing to be able to tell the story of, of you know, the 2nd Raider Battalion and, uh, you know, those 19 Marines uh, that, that were unfortunately left on the island. Um, we don't know exactly who carried it, but... Uh, we can narrow it down, you know, looking at those 19 names to see who was, we're trying to figure out who was carrying what type of weapon. So we can probably narrow it down a little bit more, but, but really, you know, it's, it's a testament to them and, and their, their courage and, and, you know, fighting ability. And so. we're, we're coming up on the 80th anniversary of that yes. battle, which is why we're running this article in right. the August issue of Leatherneck. And when you read the article, you'll be able to see some incredible photos that show the way the rifle looked prior to conservation sure. and the way it looks now. It's the, the uh, conservationists did a brilliant job. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. If you can't wait, there was a sound, uh, a saved round. Saved round, right. Yes. right. It's kind of touched on it a little bit about two years ago. Oh, years gosh, ago. it was quite a while ago. Um, I, I saw a photo of the rifle just as it was getting ready to go into conservation, mm-hmm. and it it really piqued my interest so i wrote up a saved round about it and i guess a couple months ago john and i were just we were having lunch and talking and he mentioned uh, one of us talked about macon and that rifle i don't remember who we had just gotten it back yeah yeah. and i my you know my head started to explode like oh my gosh i gotta i gotta get a look at that rifle so um, yeah the uh the navy had done um you know when they gave it back to us i think in february they uh they had done a, a video piece on it uh, for their pr purposes and it you know was aired uh, publicly and everything and uh it really you know talked about the the, the process more than than the uh the history of it but still it was uh, it was kind of cool to be a part of it i you know i i came into it late um 
you know, I got here in 2020. It had already been with them for four years. So I'm really just sort of picking up on the tail of it. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of other people who, who really, you know, helped shepherd it along the way. But I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to, to be on the receiving end to, to get it back here and now get it on exhibit. Um, so that's been just, uh, just pretty incredible. Are there any other pieces going to the exhibit with it? Um, it'll be the rifle, the bullets, the cleaning kit, and everything. So, um, and, and actually, you know, we're working on on uh, dealing with creating special mounts for it and everything to to really be able to show you it in context as much as possible. Awesome. So. Could you could you tell us a little bit about uh, what your um, sort of what you're hoping to achieve in the preservation process? What state you want to get the rifle into, and how you're going to prevent uh, further corrosion? <laughs> Uh, it's been treated for further corrosion, so I mean, it's that's not uh, an issue at this point. Um, it's been um, professionally conserved to such an, a, a, an extent that it is it is not going to break down anymore within our lifetimes. Um, it's going to be in the the World War II gallery. There there is a Macon Island case already, and uh, so we'll be swapping out some artifacts that are types that were carried by the 2nd Raider Battalion uh, on the mission to the rifle that was actually there. So it's really going to be a major upgrade for the exhibit. That's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I've got a question for each of you. Okay. Tell us what your personal M1 story is. Why are you so, why, why do you find that rifle so compelling? I happen to know you each have okay. a story. So this is kind of a, first? this was, pun intended, a loaded question. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh -huh. um, oh, man, I've been waiting all day for that. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. So uh, my my father owns one. He was not an infantryman. He was, he was in the Air Force. He was a pilot. Um, but he purchased one through the civilian marksmanship program, I don't know, well over 10 years ago. And it, that specific individual rifle is really what kicked off in large part my interest in the mechanics of firearms. Um, he would always make me, when we got back from the range when I was a kid, he would always make me clean the guns, of course, because, you know, what else do you have kids for? <laughs> and so one of the times when I, I don't even remember about how old I was. I know I was a teenager and I had just sort of started to understand a little bit about how a firearm actually functions mechanically. And so when we got back from the range and I was taking it apart, I wanted to do a detail strip and clean all the parts. And in getting down into taking the individual components out, looking at how the, uh, say, the operating rod engages with the bolt and how the, uh, how the gas system works and stuff like that, that really sparked an interest in me in like, holy crap, this is an extremely elaborate machine, but still designed to be mass-produced. Every cut, every angle, every machined surface on every single part was done for a reason. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole history behind all this stuff and a lot of engineering and design that went into it. And it's, it's really just, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of a work of art, a mechanical masterpiece. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, it, it really is, a, you know, an incredible piece of engineering. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, my personal story um, starts about 1977. Um, yeah, I'm that old. Um, We're the only two who were alive <laughs> exactly. in 1977 um, in this so room here. <laughs> I was four years old. 
okay, my, I was uh, <laughs> my uh, grandfather pulled out his footlocker for the first time. Uh, my granddad was an infantry officer in World War II, fought in Europe, uh, army guy. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm an army, army guy too, but um, that became my treasure chest uh, growing up. Uh, my granddad was my best friend. I was fortunate to have 32 years with him. Um, when I commissioned, I, I, you know, I pinned with his second lieutenant's bars. Uh, he was fortunately there for it and everything too. Um, but, you know, growing up, he'd tell me about his, his experiences. And of course, once I got into the army, he really told me about the real experiences. But, um, one of the things he told me early on was as an officer, you didn't want to look like an officer. So as an officer, you'd be issued an M1 carbine and, you know, you, it would make you stand out. So one of the first things he did upon entering combat was he ditched his carbine and he grabbed an M1. Second thing he did was he grabbed a handful of mud and sanded off the, the big follow me stripe on the back of his helmet and cleaned off the, uh, the lieutenant's bar on the front. Uh, tucked his <laughs> collars in, you know, and he, he said, my men knew who I was. They weren't going to worry about, you know, whether or not I was wearing the proper insignia. And that's one of the things that, you know, that kept him alive. I mean, he basically got through World War II in Europe from Normandy to the end with almost not without a scratch. Uh, one minor wound, but, um, wow. yeah, I mean, really, really pretty amazing. Um, in the mid nineties, um, you know, I'd been collecting stuff, um, for a while already, but in the mid nineties, I got very much into world war II living history and, uh, joined a couple of groups, one air corps, one infantry, and just really started, you know, immersing myself in that as well as, you know, starting my, my museum career. Um, I started working at the New the uh, Intrepid Museum in New York in 1991, uh, graduated from college in 96, and then, uh, you know, worked at a number of museums uh, through that as well. Um, 1997, I bought my M1, and uh, it was a little hole-in-the-wall gun store in Terrytown, New York, and uh, I found this thing, and it was in great shape. Um, the price was right. And it was an October 1942 rifle. And, you know, I just, it was great. So I brought it home and everything and I talked to my granddad about it and he said, you have it? Yeah. He said, well, how'd you get it? You know, what, what? And so I brought it out and it was like somebody flipped a switch. Suddenly my 80 something year old grandfather was 26 again. And he literally went through the entire manual of arms with the M1. And, you know, it was a sight to behold. It was really incredible. And he handed it back to me and said, wow, you know, it's been a while. And I, I was completely blown away. And so because of him, you know, I, I've bought and sold a number of guns over the years. Um, that's one that I will never part with. Um, that is just, you know, it's, it, it will go on to my kids. Uh, they understand the, the historical significance of it. And they're, they're, you know, I'm pretty proud of that too. But, but that connection with him that, I mean, he and I connect on, on so many levels, but, but I had never seen that before. And it was just really, really pretty, uh, pretty cool to see. That story gives me goosebumps. Great story. Yeah. yeah. It's probably pretty representative of a lot of stories too. So sure. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, just kind of, so coming back to Sam's point earlier about the engineering a little bit. Uh, so the M1, when it was first being designed, was not as – it was a smaller bullet, right? Like, Yeah. So there's some quirks on the gun that have to deal with being rechambered, right? Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this on previous occasions. So 
Um, for those of you who have uh, read my article, first of all, thank you. Um, <laughs> I read it. The uh, well, I mean the people listening, but <clears throat> uh, those of you who read my article uh, will know that the army was initially, in, and I, I keep mentioning the army because yeah, they led the development program. Um, they were working on uh, trying to get people to develop semi-automatic rifles since about the 20s. So the Army was investigating a 276 caliber round to replace the 30-06. Um, 30-06 had been designed, well, really uh, based on the performance of the French 8mm Lebel, which itself was specced out to kill a cavalry horse at 1,000 yards. And after the First World War, many... Uh, European and the U.S. military as well. Many European militaries in the U.S. military realized that it's not much use to have this big, heavy, powerful uh, rifle round if you will very seldom, if ever, have infantrymen uh, using it to its full potential. They realized that a lot of the combat going on was either firing shots of opportunity across the no-man's land or in trench raiding, it would actually be beneficial to have something that kicked less so that you could send more rounds downrange and get more hits. So the Americans started working on the 276 Pedersen round, which was a, a 7 millimeter. Um, I believe the performance was something like a, about a 140 grain bullet moving at about maybe 2,400, 2,500 feet per second. Yeah, the muzzle velocity was slightly lower than the 30-06, but negligibly. Yeah, so uh, the, the ideas here were that if you make the round smaller um, and it recoils less, then you can design a smaller and lighter rifle to fire it. Soldiers and Marines can fire more rounds more rapidly, and because the ammo weighs less, they can carry more of it, and it costs less to produce. Right. You get these these sort of exponential gains um, from just making small changes. But MacArthur stepped in, General MacArthur himself stepped in at the last minute and said, no, this has to use the standard service ammunition so it's compatible with the machine guns. And so the, uh, the two rifles that were being trialed at the time, the one developed by John Garand, and yeah, that is how he pronounced his name. I know people say Garand, but he pronounced his name with the emphasis on the first syllable, so I will be doing that as well. Hmm. Um, I'm a Garand guy, but hey. He, well, <laughs> it's it's not that big a deal. No, that's not. Either way. It's not. So um, John Pedersen tried to redesign his rifle for the 30 caliber, and uh, John Garand was successfully able to redesign his rifle in 30 caliber because he'd been working on uh, rifles in 30-06 before he hadn't started from the ground up in 276. And so you get, you get a few little quirks. Um, namely, first of all, the magazine capacity was reduced from 10 to 8. People think, oh, why 8 rounds? That seems like such a weird number. Well, it turns out that in that size of internal box magazine, you can fit 10 rounds of 276 or 8 rounds of uh, the larger 30. Also, the, uh, the operating rod is one of the weak points of the rifle. It has this, this dog-like bend in it um, to fit around the magazine. Same thing. It was originally straight, but they had to bend it to fit around the wider cartridges, and so now that's considered to be kind of a point of failure if you... Uh, like if you fire commercial ammunition that's too powerful, um, it'll ruin the rifle by bending the operating rod at that exact point. 
So uh, you mentioned that the uh, in your article that the uh, M1 Garand was uh, informed a lot by a lot of semiotic rifles on the civilian market. I know that World War One produced a flurry of just from practical to bizarre of other semiotic rifles. Why did they end up going with um, uh, instead of, uh, not using a uh, a standard magazine instead of feeding it from the top? The given reason for using an internal box magazine fed by clips instead of using a detachable magazine was, get this, and I'm not making this up, because the army was worried that soldiers would be dumb enough to lose all their magazines in the field, and then they wouldn't be able to feed the rifle. So they figured if we go with an internal magazine um, and you feed it with clips, then that'll be, first of all, it'll be a little cheaper to produce. Um, which is a big deal because they can get more rifles out of the factory and arm mo more soldiers and more Marines. But they were also, I, I'm serious, they were worried that, that guys in the field would lose their magazines. Now, I know that still happens to some extent. <laughs> um, yes, it does. Uh, those of you uh, who, who are guilty of this know I'm talking to you. <laughs> but magazines are a lot cheaper to manufacture nowadays and um, you they're they're pretty easy to supply so it's not as big a deal and the army later found out that yeah even if soldiers are losing their ammunition feeding devices they're not losing enough of them that it becomes a problem is there any like an experimental version of the m1 garin with a magazine that's floating around there in some archive out there oh yeah yeah, yeah. We, we actually have a couple um now i i, I did want to also make the point that with the the top feeding of, of the clip down into the, the garant it was already muscle memory um the o3 was fed by stripper clips into the top of the receiver so it was something that was familiar to soldiers already um, so it was just, it was a lot easier to do it that way rather than, than transitioning to a bottom loaded, locked in place, uh, magazine. Now we do have a number of evolutions between the, uh, the M1 and the M14. Um, there are, you know, during World War II, they're starting to look at, at how to include a box magazine in it, like BAMR, a BAR magazine or something like that to increase, further increase the firepower. Uh, so you get the T-20 and the T-22 and, and, and all the way up to, to what becomes the M14, which is the T-44 series. Uh, but there's a lot of experimentation going on in the later World War II years up through uh, when the, uh, the M14 is finally developed, and uh, finally adopted, rather, in uh, 1957. So you mentioned you have uh, some of them in, in your collection. Yes. Which was specific? Uh, we have just about a complete run from the T-20 up, uh, up to the T-44. Uh, I think we're missing one or two pieces, um, you know, in, in the uh, Marine Corps collection. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this the Marines were very, very involved in the development of the follow-on to the M1. Uh, so... So I remember when I was a uh, was a kid reading all like the Band of Brother books, and then each like you know each individual member then wrote their own. Some talked about like uh, different ways they would modify uh, their M1 Garand to, for uh, for for various purposes. What are some of the ones that you all have noticed that were uh, most effective? Um, let's see. Uh, I'm not. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm not sure of, of you know any field mods really. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't necessary to to really modify it too much in the field. I, I do um, remember but, reading but, that some would like I guess do do something or rather to make it fully automatic. Yeah, I mean, you could file down the sear and stuff like that, but you know, it, it's um, I don't know that really if that would be a, a, an improvement on it or not. I mean, you've got other machine gun guys in the in the unit. I mean. It would also, wasting your because this isn't a firearm designed to 
fire on fully automatic. It doesn't have an auto sear, so any type of gunsmith level modification made to it would just induce a slam fire, which is right. a dangerous which condition. Is, yeah, don't I, do that. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to be the, the the perceived benefits are definitely not going to outweigh the the uh, you know the issues that they they would develop. Yeah, but like tell that to an eighteen year old GI. Well, yeah, of course. Tell anything to an eighteen-year-old GI. I mean, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was a platoon leader in a company XL. You can't really do that much, but <laughs> I know people people would um, do some sort of field expedient things, not necessarily to um, to modify the rifle mechanically, but so that they could use it more effectively. Um, like you'll see photos sometimes, um, and I think reenactors do this. Um, you'll see photos of people. Um, winding their rifle slings around the loaded clips so that way um, kind of like the way a, a medieval longbowman would hold his arrows in in the hand with which he was holding the longbow uh, you have easier access to the ammunition mm. as opposed to having to reach back and, and uh, pull the clips out of your bandolier or, or whatever um, so that's I always thought that was sort of interesting because mm. I, I don't think that was in any field manuals or, or part of any official doctrine, but it seems to be a pretty widespread thing. Yeah, I mean, usually you see shots of, of clips on uh, GI's web uh, web gear and stuff like that, too, so you could cl- grab it quickly and then you know get it right into the rifle rather than having to go into your cartridge belt and pull out you know a, a, a clip. So we were talking about modifications that may or may not have been done in the field. So if you were making a modification today, if you were going to improve on the M1, what would you do? That's a question for both of you. I wouldn't. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. Um, I I mean, there's a reason why George Patton called it the finest battlefield implement ever devised. Um, It's, I mean, yeah, maybe a larger magazine. but that's not something that you could really do in the field. But other than that, I mean, it's an incredible weapon. It's um, beautiful to fire. I mean, I, I'm a considerably smaller person than some of you. I have fired the M1, and I couldn't believe how smooth it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm by no means any type of marksman or rifleman or anywhere close to it. But it was beautiful to fire. It was just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rifle's just about as big as you are, and you seem <laughs> to handle it just fine. I mean, I, I think, well, part of that is because of how heavy it is, but I think that's really sure. a, a testament to the design. It was designed for people to be able to shoot. That was something, um, you know, you, you'll hear some modern shooters say, oh, you know, so what about recoil? Just get stronger. It doesn't matter. Well, no, there is a there there mm-hmm. if you design something that's um, relatively short and compact and easy to shoot and lighter weight than some of its counterparts and with less recoil than some of its counterparts there's an advantage there for the for a shooter of the same skill a lighter and handier rifle with less recoil uh will be more effective 10 times out of 10 yep well, the uh, guns they use in the olympics are very lightweight so absolutely yeah <laughs> now as for improvements um I, I would have to respectfully disagree with uh, okay. with Mr. Bernstein here, and I think there are a number of improvements that could have been made, including some that they would have known about at the time, Okay, namely shortening the gas system. Okay. Um, oh, so this bring, is getting good. making it, you know, like the M14 rather than... Yeah, not necessarily not necessarily introducing a short stroke piston because I don't think re- they really had those at the time, right. but definitely... Well, the Russians did, but... Um, 
definitely shortening, uh, bringing the gas port closer to the chamber and shortening the operating rod uh, commensurately. So the when the M1 was originally designed, it had that gas trap system right. because the military was afraid that drilling a gas port into the barrel would ruin the accuracy, which was not true. It's another fallacy that the, the Germans fell into during the war, um, and, and they never really got their, their way out of that. But if the rifle had been designed from the ground up with a gas port drilled into the barrel, they could have made the gas system shorter, which would have increased pressure at the port, um, improving reliability in harsh conditions. And uh, it would have made the rifle a little bit less front heavy and a little bit less heavy overall, and I think a little bit easier to manufacture. Yeah, but it would change the aesthetic of it. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. Um, Which if, kind of goes into the fantasy version of Nancy's question, asking, like, if you could, re if you could make a change today, you have access to modern materials, modern construction, you know, manufacturing techniques... M1 2.0. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I, I have a little bit of thought experiment here. Take an M1, shorten the gas system exactly like I said. Um, turn the action upside down and fully enclose the bolt so that the locking surfaces aren't exposed. Redesign it for a detachable box magazine um, and change it to, uh, you know, redesign the rifle to fire a, a lower power intermediate cartridge. Oh, you've got an M4. I would say you've got an AK-47. Well, okay, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I should say an M27, but... Well, um, sa same, same gas system as an AK rifle, same locking system, same trigger mechanism. It's lifted pretty much directly from it. I'm not saying Frankenstein and existing M1 because they're pieces of art, but if you Don't would do build, that. build one yeah. from scratch, I would. You, that's, like, that's a YouTube channel right there. I'm yeah, sorry. We, I guess it's my AK bias, you know, or, or my anti-AK bias seeping in there. But um, well, Kalashnikov did have the uh, he did have the the ability to take apart M1 rifles, um, and he was actually given M1 carbines as well to take apart. And he incorrectly thought they were designed by the same person mm -hmm. because the the controls are so similar. Yeah, they are. Um, but he he it's it's obvious if you take apart an AK and an M1 right next to each other. Sure. You can, you can yeah, see a lot of inspiration there. Sure. Actually, you, got, you need to come over and see our Winchester automatic rifle, Ooh. which is basically just a scaled-up carbine. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible seeing the, the, the similarities there. And obviously, they're both designed by the same same team. But, yeah, that was that's pretty cool. So uh, refer, going over to your, your inventory at the, at the Marine Corps Museum, what are some of the, uh, like the, the white whales you have floating around? Uh, well, we have a uh, T3E2, serial number 89, um, which is one of the test rifles that became the M1. Uh, and it is 276 caliber. Um, and that's really, um, you know, one of, one of the, the most fascinating pieces, uh, as far as rifles go, that, that, uh, that I prefer, I, you know, I'd say, I'd, you know, there. Did we run that picture in the magazine? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah we that's did. right. That's um, right. So, that's yeah, we did that. We did the T1 Pedersen as well, um, which, you know, obviously we have, uh, serial number 13. And uh, we did one more. We did the Johnson, um, which, right. again, is one of my uh, my personal favorites. Uh, the Johnson rifle is actually the first semi-automatic rifle that the Marines took into combat uh, because on August 7th, when 1st Marine Division was going into uh into Guadalcanal, the 1st Parachute Battalion was carrying 23 uh, Johnson rifles. Um, and of those 23 that have been identified by serial number, we actually have two of them in the collection. Incredible. 
Yes. Uh, we have one that has been on display for, for a while now, and then we just had one donated within the past year that uh, was with 1st Parachute Battalion on Guadalcanal and then was carried by Colonel John Lanigan, who was uh, CO of the 25th Marines uh, on, uh, <coughs> on Iwo Jima, uh, and he was carrying it when he was in the, his uh, Navy Cross. What is, so. what is your acquisitions process? Like, I know, I know you said donations, but do you have, like, you know, you, are you looking for pieces that, of your collection that are missing? Um, we're always uh, interested in hearing about, you know, stuff that's out there um, that tells a good Marine Corps story. Uh, for example, we just had, uh, and in fact, we, we have a, a donation that's in the process right now of, uh, that was brought in by the son of, uh, of Colonel Ed uh, uh, Lefebvre who was uh, a three-war Marine. Uh, he flew combat in, uh, in World War II Korea and Vietnam. Uh, and his, uh, his son just donated his 45, among you know, other uh, stuff as well. It's a massive collection. It's fantastic. Uh, fantastic. And as, avi- as an aviation guy, I'm totally geeking out over this, uh, this, really this cool. uh, donation. I mean, it's amazing stuff. But yeah, I mean, really the, the focus is, you know, we have plenty of rifles in the collection. It's those rifles that can, or, or those firearms that can help us tell a better Marine Corps story in the museum. That's what we really want. Um, you know, I can put a dozen M1s out there. If we don't know who carried them, so what? You know, we need to know who carried it. What did they do with it? Um, you know, that's really how people relate to artifacts. And so, you know, that, that's really what we're, we're seeking out more than anything. If you put an M1 on display, just because it's an M1, then it's one of five and a half million. Right. If you put an M1 on display that was carried by that specific person at that specific battle, it's one of one. Right. Exactly. So. All right. Um, so we've talked about how the M1 kind of came to be. We talked about it through the war, and it wasn't changed too much, right? There were a few little modifications. They changed the gas system uh, to the the what we're used to today from uh, from the gas trap to the gas port, right. uh, and that was very early on. And in, I believe, 1944 or 45, the rear sight was simplified, and that is it. That That's is completely... It. Yep the extent of it and so then let's kind of skip forward about a, a decade a decade i guess we we're starting to wind it down or we'll replace the sure, they actually restarted the other uh, production line in the early 50s uh during korean war um with and harrington and richardson and and uh i think it's ihc it's international harvester that's it yeah wow uh so those two were brought in to to manufacture additional rifles uh during the korean war um so yeah, I mean it was it was put back into production because it was it was needed, um, but uh, you know that at that point you know, there were a couple of more a couple more modifications done. The trigger guard went from a milled trigger guard to a stamped trigger guard. Um, they also added the uh, the newer gas plug. Uh, I think that was that was actually done during World War II with the the plus rather than the uh, single slot uh, on the uh, the gas port. It um, might have been, but uh, yeah. my my father's rifle is one of those late production ones, so I'm only familiar with, okay. uh, you know, physically manipulating that one with all the changes. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, the the actually the rifle that I have, um, I've I've corrected two parts on it, and other than the barrel, which is a, a 1956 barrel, it is all original October 42. So, okay. um, and then we kind of get to the point where it's time to start retiring the M1. Right. 
Um, what are some of the reasons we're looking at, like, the M14? Or well, I mean, the, F- the M14 was sort of the logical follow-on to the M1. Um, they, they wanted something that was select fire, so it could be fired both fully and, and semi-automatic. Uh, they wanted something with a box magazine. Um, and the M1's receiver was adaptable to that. Um, and, and, you know, they, they sort of went through this, this evolution starting during World War II to see how they can improve it and, uh, and make it more of a, a, you know, modern battle rifle. Um, and, you know, what they came up with was really, you know, a, a very good rifle. Um, you know, it shortened the gas system. It, it, you know, went to the box magazine and, you know, added the select fire, but, oh, and they went to the 308 rather than the 30-06, but, you know, basically the same, roughly similar uh, ballistics on, on the round. It's just, you know, shorter cartridge. Um, and, you know, really uh, was was a good follow-on to it. And then, you know, with the uh, with the introduction of the M16 in the Army, uh, just a couple of years later, you know, the M14 sort of got phased out pretty quickly, but it's never been fully replaced. Um, you know, there's still versions of the M14 in service today. And that one has been updated with modern materials. Yes, and exactly. Stuff, yeah. Looking at, you know, DMRs and EMRs and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it's just really uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty impressive what you can still do with an M14. And even M1s themselves are still used pretty widely as drill rifles. Yes, they, they are. They made so many of the things. See, I always think of the M14 as the drill rifle, but I guess there's yeah, M1s well, out there. Yeah. A lot of M1s out there still. Yeah. 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 So Nick, have you fired the M1? I have fired an M1. Thoughts? Uh, it's like you said, smooth. It feels nice. Uh, I fired it right after I fired the ni- a 1903, and it it doesn't it doesn't hurt you as much. So. <laughs> no. The hype is real. If <laughs> if you're listening to this and you haven't fired an M1, and you have access or will at some point have access to one, uh, you need to do it. That's one of the assec- That's one of the essential it is. experiences. It truly is. Or if you're not a particular gun nut and don't know the channels, how would you go about trying to maybe source one? It's probably not as easy as it was in the 90s. The civilian marksmanship program is really, you know, the, the way to do it. Um, it. They're still affordable there, um, but, you know, you have to be either a veteran or um, go through the, the M1 uh, training class and everything that the, the CMP does from time to time. Um, I actually went through the CMP uh, M1 class back in 1997, I think. Um, and learned a heck of a lot about the rifle and everything. And of course, we shot you know competition and everything there too, which was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, CMP is really the the way to go because um, you can still get them fairly uh, fairly affordably. What is a uh, fair price for M1 these days <laughs> in the market? A fair price. So, I paid four hundred dollars for mine in nineteen ninety seven. Um, I have been offered twelve hundred for it and turned it down. So, they're very you know they're, they're up there uh for especially for for you know really good condition rifles yeah i mean the, the milsert market every time there's a world war ii movie it, oh yeah it, 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 it bumps up a little bit yeah, absolutely i don't know if this is still true but for a while there you could get a field grade example for something like 650 yeah that's about what the cmp is charging now oh they haven't so. all dried up yet no no they haven't hmm. so uh, <laughs> uh-oh <I don't> uh-oh <laughs> you've got a birthday coming up there you go <laughs> Well, I, I know I had to save up for something. It was either going to be an MR556A1 or, well, um, an M1 would be substantially less expensive than that. So that gives me some dangerous ideas. And I can actually find ammo for it, unlike my Type 99. Yep. All right. Yeah. Well, there is, I, not to like be too abrupt with this transition here, but there is a lot of aviation interest in this room. I want to oh, make yeah. sure we got, while well, we got John in the room here, sure. talking about uh, aviation ordnance. So what? 
That's Ordinates, right. are we particularly... We've got two pilots in the room yeah, for the first time ever. True. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, I've been, uh, we've been out, um, at, well, let me not get into that. Um, I, I've been looking into aviation ordinance, um, recently. My main interest, um, as an, both an aviator as an, and as an aviation historian has been close air support. Um, so right now I'm looking at the evolution of aircraft rockets and how they, they sort of came about in World War II, uh, cause there's a lot of misconceptions out there about them and how they were used and what types were used and everything. Uh, so that's been, been fascinating to, to get into. Um, there are, you know, there are a lot of, um, sort of assumptions that, oh yeah, they were just used widespread and, and really they didn't get into service until mid 44, um, why you know in any real major strength? I mean, the first combat use was uh, was 11 January of uh, 44, and you know they uh, they developed a, a number of different types, uh, both the army and the navy. Looking at the army's program, it's it was an absolute disaster, uh, and they basically switched over to the navy type, uh, which was was pretty cool um, and far more effective. Um, so that's just been been really uh, interesting to, to get into all the, the primary source documents on that. Um, I'm not sure exactly what I'm gonna gonna write with this, but uh, it's definitely gonna be something uh, that that very few people have seen before. Yeah, I recall a story. Now it, it was British. It was I think it was Spitfires mm -hmm. loaded up with rockets. Uh, probably typhoons. Or, typhoons. Yeah, yes. probably typhoons. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna get the details wrong. I turned this. Few, it's been a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But uh, where they actually were only loaded up with rockets, mm -hmm. and they went on an attack run into, I believe it was just Germany. Okay. I don't think that, I think they were already pushed far enough over to shoot there. And they unloaded every rocket they had from like 14 planes or 18 planes, mm -hmm. and then not one of them hit the target. There were <laughs> a lot of issues with accuracy. Um, yeah. um, the, the British rockets were better than ours in some ways, and not as good in others. Um, their rocket motors, especially the, the three and a half inch uh, or the three inch motors that they had, were better than the three and a half inch uh, motors that we had. Uh, that being said, both their RP3 rockets and our Mark VII rockets were nose heavy, so you really needed to to figure out the ballistics on it before you pull that trigger because they tended to to fall short. Um, yeah, I mean it, there there were a lot of accuracy issues with them. And um, what, so it feels like they were not a whole lot better than dropping a few 250-pound bombs or 120, was it 150-pound bombs, the well, smaller one, um, for a while what you What you have to realize, first of all, is, is a rocket is an area weapon system. Mm -hmm. It's not a precision weapon. Um, second of all, one rocket is the equivalent of, uh, for uh, an American rocket, would be the equivalent of a 5-inch uh, anti-aircraft shell uh, or a 5-inch artillery shell. So one P-47 or one Corsair could basically put down a battery's worth of artillery on an area. That's devastating firepower. Um, and it really, you know, was, was a game changer. It, wasn't, it didn't necessarily have to be, you know, pinpoint target on a tank. But if you could saturate that entire area, you'd kill all the supporting infantry. And then that tank is, you know, toast. So it was, they were effective for area suppression. They were effective for, you know, killing a flak crew around a gun. They didn't necessarily need to hit the gun directly uh, to be effective. So, and, you know, one of the things I've been getting into is, you know, they started using proximity fuses on them too. So now you've got a little radar in the nose of that rocket that, that can sense when it's, it's near 
a uh, you know near a target and it will detonate in the air rather than on impact, uh, which made them a lot more lethal. What's the time window you're looking at here? I'm really looking um, 1942 to about 1953. 1953. Um, so that's right before they start getting on the helicopters, I guess? That, yeah. yeah. Um, they, we started experimenting, uh, the Army started experimenting with uh, rockets on helicopters really by about 1955-56 with the House Board. Um, and, uh, you know, they started uh, doing all sorts of different uh, configurations on all sorts of different helicopters. Um, but really it wasn't until 62 where um, we started seeing armed helicopters, you know, supporting um, ground forces and or Arvin forces in Vietnam. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we took off from there. Okay. And then, um, so as you're looking at the rockets then, um, was it kind of just uh, a modification to do on any kind of heavy fighter or attack attack fighter? Or um, yeah, I mean, it was initially um, one of the first systems the Army developed was uh, was called the, uh, fired the M8 rocket, and it was a triple launch tube that was hung under the wing. Um, they were fairly capable, um, and again, it was they adopted the four and a half inch artillery rocket um, to an aircraft use. Um, but those those uh, clusters of tubes hanging under each wing caused a lot of drag, um, reduced the the maneuverability of the airplane and everything. wasn't really great, and the Army really poured a lot of resources into that program. the The Navy and the Marine Corps started off with uh, the three and a half inch rocket on mounted on rails that was faster, uh, was more accurate. And they realized very quickly they didn't need the rail system. Um, and they came up with what they called zero length launchers, which basically were aerodynamic stubs mounted under the wings that a little button on the rocket just locked into um, both at fr the front and the back of the rocket. And when it ignited, it was off and it didn't need that whole launch rail to keep it accurate and then keep it keep it uh, you know true because it tended to, to um, weather vane into the the airstream so it would be it as, as long as you kept the aircraft in trim it would fly straight and so that really was was the big development that the Navy and the Marine Corps came up with that everybody else developed after that or, or adopted after that okay what were they using like because you know they didn't have computer chips right they were they using to actually set the rockets off. Um, it was electrically fired. It was electrically um, fired. Yeah, I mean, and, and with rockets even today, I mean, anybody who's, who's worked around aircraft rockets knows static electricity is, is a killer, yeah. um, quite literally. Um, you know, you do your straight current checks and everything when you're rearming uh, arm, uh, current aircraft, and um, it's it's really uh, something you need to be incredibly aware of. Uh, don't rub your feet on the floor before you, you start touching rockets and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it just... Little bit of, of excess current can can really you know ruin your day. Yeah, because that's what was actually going through my mind as you were explaining. They're shorter tubes because mm -hmm. they're kind of exposed to the air, right? Which generates, from what I understand, generates electric fields. As yeah, I mean th there is some some yeah. you know friction generated, but um, yeah. really it's you know you've got your 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 ignition wire that uh -huh. that comes from the aircraft to the rocket, and that's what will you know will will launch it. Okay. I don't know a whole lot about rockets in mm -hmm. World War II, so yeah, I'm always, fascinating. Always stuff. happy to learn. Um, yeah. So, how do you actually learn about the rockets? Do you have the documentation? Like, there's not a lot of those rockets laying around, are there? Like, right now, we actually we have a three and a half inch, and we have a five inch uh, HVAR, which is the high velocity aircraft rocket. Uh, when the HVAR was the last, 
type that we developed during World War II and was the most accurate, fastest, and, and uh, probably hardest hitting as well. Uh, and that's what we used through the Korean War as well. Um, as far as documentation, um, we had some in the uh, in the office actually. We you know, we have a fairly extensive manual collection and everything, so been able to get into that. Um, been pulling unit histories. Um, have the uh, the unit history of uh, uh, Aviation Ordnance Development Unit One, which was the Navy unit that worked with Caltech to develop the first rockets, and that has been fascinating to to get into. Um, also, uh, this week I'm actually going to go talk to Jack Elliott, who was you know oh, wow. um, who was right in the middle of all of that. Um, so yeah, he and I are going to sit down on, on Thursday and, and we'll talk rockets and everything. Cause one of the manuals that I've been going through was, was his manual from March of 1944. So that's pretty, uh, pretty He'd spectacular. Get him to sign the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, anybody got any? So, uh, for our listeners who want to educate, uh, themselves more on, uh, you know, either M1 rifle or, weapons in general what resources would you recommend wow um uh actually one of the the really cool resources that i have used uh, a lot is fold3.com um if you want to look into the unit histories um whether it's it's you know ground-based marines aviation marines or or anything they have massive amounts of primary source documentation there uh, online i mean yeah it's a paid subscription but but still it's well worth it um I've been pulling up, you know, individual uh, squadron histories. So, like, uh, with, with the first uh, Marine combat use of rockets was uh, VMTB-134 in February of, uh, of 1944. And they had all of that right there online. So, uh, really a phenomenal source. Awesome. So, we have uh, first article on the M1 came out in uh, April. We have your article on the making uh, M1 come out in August. Is there any other works or anything you'd like to plug for your future? Or? Um, just come to the museum we're, we're doing new stuff all the time um obviously you know final phases is, is well uh in, in the works so we'll be opening those galleries probably in uh 2024 at some point um but really uh lots of lots of new stuff lots of uh, updates and and you know just uh come see the museum awesome um i would i would say pretty much uh a, a similar thing read leatherneck magazine if you're listening you to go. this you're probably already reading leatherneck um in which case good on you if you're not uh, I don't know why you're not, because it's pretty much the same stuff as you'll hear on the podcast, just in print form. Um, I believe it was R. Lee Ermey himself who said that when he wants to know what's going on in the Marine Corps, he reads Leatherneck Magazine. That's right. So will you really... He told us are, that. Are you really about to contradict the gunny himself, God rest his soul? Yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. So, Sam, to answer the previous question that William asked, where do you go... Or, or where would you suggest readers go, or listen, rather, excuse me, listeners go when they want to learn more? Well, I would suggest, um, as I said, listeners read the magazine for an overview. But if you really want to do in-depth historical research, um, to give a little bit of a behind-the-curtain as to what I do. Now, I, I'm not a, a properly degreed and trained historian, so I might be going about this completely wrong. But I really like primary sources. I always hit the primary sources. You're doing it right. Now, um, it's... <laughs> Sure, watching Forgotten Weapons or whatever is, is fun and all, but the stuff like that, pop history, is only your first step. It should just tell you what types of things you need to investigate, and then you have to hit hard those primary sources. Testing documentation, 
field manuals, reports by people who actually worked on various programs. If you can find memoirs by people who were influential in various weapons development programs, like uh, Hatcher's book of the Garand is great. It's by Julian, General Julian Hatcher, um, who was in Army Ordnance, probably the only sane person in Army Ordnance. Um, uh, or if, if you're just stuff like that. Hit the primary sources. There's no substitute for those. As the yeah. professionally trained uh, historian in the room, that's the very right answer. So I have to give a, two, two claps for you on that one. Thank you. When I have a question about weapons, um, I go to, well, either Sam, you, or you, John. So mm -hmm. well, I, have the, I have the advantage there. I don't have to... I don't quite have to read the primary sources. I just hit the two of you up. Like, well, hey. the reason the reason you come to us is because we either That's have right. read We're in the primary sources, sources or we right. have access to them. It's, sure. a, it's just a it's a it's my uh, it's like Cliff's Notes. I just go to go to the two of you and you answer the questions. We're for just me. search engines. You know, I, I've always tried to focus on on the primary sources and everything, and you know, going through personal paper collections and and. Um, just you know unit histories and everything like that to try to you know i've always called it putting the puzzle together um but I, I will also say that you know there are there is a reason there are secondary sources out there too and and I, as a historian I, I i guess i tend to, to overlook them at times and and it's something that that you know there are a lot of good sources out there um you know there, there's good uh you know stuff on firearms so yeah i mean get pick up a book Really, it doesn't matter what it is, but but start somewhere. Start reading. Um, I mean, that's how, that's how I got started with airplanes. It's got, I mean, it's I have my first airplane book from from way back in the seventies. Um, but it's how to ignite a passion. Well, and actually, interesting that you would say that. Sam and I were just talking last night about how at age eight, nine, he would come up up here to this office with me when when I was a copy editor at the time for Leatherneck, and he'd. Get dragged along. I would pour through these Jane's recognition guys. Yes, I, she she couldn't Absolutely. very well leave uh, a, a young child at. Uh, well, I mean, she probably could have, but uh, she would drag me along to the office during <laughs> no, the summer when I was out that. of school, uh -huh. and I would I would leave through these Jane's recognition guides, um, and you know they're pretty much just dry specs and uh, a more or less correct paragraph synopsis about whatever vehicle or, or uh, weapon system it is. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, just as, as Mr. Bernstein said, if you want to learn about something, just read as much as you can about it. And th this, this next point gets a little bit into historiography and, and sort of the, um, I guess, ethical issues there. But um, Always, of course, cross-check your sources with each other yes. because with a primary source, um, you're just getting dry information in isolation. So when you hit a secondary source, you're getting, first of all, someone who ideally knows what he or she is talking about and um, amalgamates all those different resources together to build a more complete picture. But you also get that writer's personal biases. Absolutely. In. So, so what do you uh, mean you're not a degreed uh, historian? You're, you're sounding like you are. <laughs> uh, I'm not a great student. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, yeah, oh, you're, God. you're, you're oh, on the right God. track there, man. <laughs> and and just to go back to what William asked earlier, what Sam, what are you working on for Leatherneck? I know already, but tell everybody what you're working on for Leatherneck. Uh, well, I'm about to have a write-up on Modern Day Marine 2022 go to press. Um, that took place in May. It's a great expo. Go next time. 
if if you're listening to if you're listening to this, I would strongly encourage you to visit. And I believe that's going to press in August, right? That is also in the August. That's right. You guys are, are yeah, side cool. by side in yeah, the August issue. Yeah, double feature. There you go. So make make sure you're receiving Leatherneck magazine. And then the next installment of This Is My Rifle will be uh, on the M27 IAR. And this is probably the most complex research project I have ever undertaken. Um, it's, it's kind of a bear. I'm not going to lie. But... Uh, when when that gets done, um, look for that in the magazine. Uh, that's sure to be pretty interesting. I'll be speaking with people who uh, have actually worked on that program. And th that's kind of one of the great things about writing about something so modern is that even though, yeah, it's more difficult because it's still going on, uh, you have much better access to the people who are actually doing that. And you can ask them the obscure questions that you won't necessarily get from a memoir from someone who died 50 years ago. True. All right. Well, gentlemen, I think you've said it all. I think it sounds like a good place to wrap it up before we start getting into the ins and outs of historiography and sure. um, talking about anything too much newer than the Korean War. Um. <laughs> We'd love to have you both back. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you, and uh, thank yeah. you very much, everyone, for yeah. listening. Thanks, guys, for having us. All right, so, John, they can find you at the... At the museum. Yep. Uh, we'll put some links from some of the stuff we talked about in the show notes. Cool. Uh, Sam, you, your content can be found on Leatherneck. Yeah. Um, and if they want to buy a gun from you and you're in Stafford, <laughs> he's, he works at a gun shop in Stafford on 610. Yeah. Um, you know the one. You know the one. It's the one that's cool. there. Um, yep. So just a quick disclaimer. This is... Uh, we're, we're all just people. We're expressing opinions. These opinions are our own. They don't represent the uh, Marine Corps Association, Leatherneck Magazine, or the museum. Or the Marine Corps. Or the Marine Corps. Um, so take our, everything we say as opinion. They're just that. And with all that, we will catch you guys on the flip and catch you later. This episode of Scuttlebutt is sponsored by Service Credit Union. Our friends at Service Credit Union have been serving military, veterans, and their families for over 65 years. You might know that they provide mortgages, including VA loans as well as auto and personal loans. But did you know that they now have a loan specifically for the iBot mobility device? For those who don't know, the iBot is a revolutionary device that goes above and beyond what a traditional mobility device can do. It can go up curbs, navigate stairs and snow, and even rise up to six feet. Of course, this device also comes with a high cost that isn't usually covered by insurance. So Service Credit Union has stepped in to help provide its members with financing, with no money down and terms up to 72 months. For more details, visit servicecu.org backslash ibot.